My dear wife, Mr. Davies will tell you what's happening here tonight. He's a good man and has done everything he can for me. I suppose there are some other good men here, too, only they don't seem to realize what they're doing. They're the ones I feel sorry for, because it'll be over for me in just a little while, but they'll have to go on remembering for the rest of their lives. A man just can't naturally take the law into his own hands and hang people without hurting everybody in the world, because then he's not just breaking one law, but all laws. Welcome to Your Pick, a film podcast. I'm Geneva. And I'm Tatum. We are two friends who love movies and love sharing them with each other. Each week, we take turns picking a film that is close to our hearts and talk about why it moves us, to tears, to laughter, and everything in between. We celebrate the craft of filmmaking, as well as the unique and personal ways we find meaning in the movies we watch. Tatum, back again, just a few days after the last time we recorded. Uh, anything you've been watching between then and now? I have watched a few. Nope, looking at my letterbox. I haven't watched it. Let me start <laughs> Honestly, over. I have not watched anything either. Um, um, yeah, so I, I haven't watched any movies. Um, I'm trying to think. I know that the one show I've just been keeping up with, as I've mentioned before, is What We Do in the Shadows. It's very good. This season is very funny. Um, I think it's stronger than the last season in lots of ways. So yeah, check out what we do in the shadows. Um, I also just wanted to say a few things about um, about my Breaking Bad rewatch. Uh, I know I finished it by now and I talked a little bit about it last week, but I don't know. I just wanted to like verbalize a few things now that I've been reflecting on it a little bit more. But I find it really interesting that um, on my rewatch, there were a lot of things that I kind of took in differently because the first time I watched the show, I had this weird, I saw, uh, what what's the, what's the phrase Geneva when like the, the, the villain, but it's kind of like a villain that you root for. What is it Anti-hero? Called? Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, the first time I watched the show, I saw I saw Walter White as more of an anti-hero in terms of he sucks, but I also kind of want to root for him, even though I know I shouldn't because he's a terrible person, whatever. Watching it this time around, I was like, he just straight up sucks. You know, I, I didn't have that same relationship because I think I think I knew where the show was going. And so I didn't I was just able to kind of look at it without that question of like, oh, wait, but I like him because he started out as this humble little high school teacher and whatever, and maybe he'll go back to that. And this time around, I was like, no, he's not going back to that. He's going to become lots of bad things. And so it was just interesting to watch it this time around and genuinely loathe him throughout the whole show, honestly. And I think he's still a very complex character because there are moments, particularly in his relationship with Jesse Pinkman, where you do sense that he genuinely cares for Jesse. Honestly, I think that Jesse and maybe Hank too is the only person in the show that he actually really cares about. Um, And so that dynamic is really interesting how he is very manipulative towards Jesse and very uh, not kind towards him, but then you do get these little glimpses. And I just, I just found analyzing that this time around to be a lot more um, just like, 
not interesting, but just a different perspective to look at the show and this character. Um, and also, I realized this time around that him and Jesse are really bad at their jobs. Because <laughs> the first time around, I was like, you know, we have these famous scenes of, you know, of um, of Walter White standing in front of people and being like, say my name, you're Heisenberg, you're goddamn right. And like, I am the one who knocks. I am the danger. And I had this memory of him being this like badass guy who really is like taking over the scene because he's the best at what he does. And watching it this time around, I'm like, no, he's really bad at his job. Like he's great at, at cooking meth. Like he makes a supreme product, which is why he can't get kicked out of the game or killed. But um, but aside from that, he's very bad at following through on like promises that he makes on things. And Jesse is really not the best at dealing drugs, even though he knows the game better than Walt does and gets more. Res- well, anyway, I don't need to go on and on about this, but I just I found it to be interesting that um, a lot of my perspectives and opinions of the Walter White character were very different this time around. And I think I almost saw it in more of a way that Vince Gilligan actually intended. Um, and yeah. So anyway, I, I, it's a very good show and I just think the crafting of the characters is very, very well done. And there's so much to dig into there. And, and also realizing this time around that Skylar really is just kind of a terrified victim almost you know she does what she can with the scenario to really like handle things a certain way um but the first time around I really thought that she was like you know she's this strong woman and she ends up getting sucked into the game and blah 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 and this time I'm like no that's I think she actually is just like genuinely terrifying and is doing what she can to survive and I see these hopes she has for the family and yada 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 um which is not to say she's entirely a victim. Like she's a very strong woman because everything she does to like protect her family and protect herself is incredible. Um, But yeah, anyway, I just wanted to like talk about that a little bit because I've just been thinking about it and I was like, I read the show a lot differently upon rewatching it. And I think it was richer The it, it was. Yeah. So anyway, that is so fascinating because I've been having a similar reevaluation of Mad Men as I've been going through a rewatch of Mad Men, but kind mm-hmm. of from the opposite direction. The first time I watched Mad Men, at least in the the first few seasons, it kind of mellowed out as it got later in the show. But the first few seasons, I hated Don Draper, and I he just every destructive decision that he made that just caused pain and confusion for all the people around him. I was just so furious with him. And so it was the supporting actors that really got me through those early seasons of the show because I just couldn't stand what a horrible person Don Draper was. But it's been really fascinating rewatching it because um, they, the way they layer in Don's backstory as it, the show goes along, particularly later in the first season and then into the second season, you really start to understand where he's coming from and understand the trauma that he went through and the fact that even though to the outside world he presents as, you know, the coolest, most talented, most powerful guy who's got it all together and, you know, every woman wants to sleep with him and he's great at his job. You see all of the anxieties that he has, you know, these fears that because he's living a a 
a life with an assumed identity, these fears that he's going to be found out and that all these things he's attained, which are so different from the childhood um, that, you know, the what he grew up with, he's so afraid that all of these things are going to be taken away. And so he acts out and he is self-loathing and self-destructive largely because of these anxieties and these traumas that he's gone through. And so, you know, that obviously that doesn't excuse the horrible behavior he he does and the the way that he um inflicts all this pain on onto his family, but it is a lot more understandable and he's a lot more sympathetic character to me on rewatch. So, yeah, rewatching shows is a great experience cuz you it is fascinating seeing how your perspective on things changes over time as you grow and mature or as subsequent watches introduces more layers to you yeah it's it's really fascinating yeah you you can cut this out if this is a tangent but I found that when I was rewatching Mad Men earlier this year I really did not like Roger Sterling at all upon rewatch the first time I watched I was like oh he's kind of like this charming guy who discovered Don and you know he's kind of a womanizer and all these things and uh but you know he's also kind of cool and funny and watching it a second time, I'm like, he, I do not like him at all. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, I still kind of feel similarly to Roger Sterling the first time, which is that he is, he kind of operates kind of more as comic relief, not in the sense that he's a comic character, but that he has, he's the one who kind of lightens the mood, but he is a fully terrible person and you just kind of have to accept that. So yeah, I, I definitely understand that. I'm trying to remember the the quotes from or the lines from that scene when it's like uh I don't know it's like how how much do you make here oh so you don't know that's very helpful (laughs) every Peggy and Roger scene we only get a few of them through the show but they are all gold yeah I just I love that scene it's it's a good one but yeah it's so good all right anything else you've been watching recently Nope. I think it's only been two days since we recorded. (laughs) So honestly, like I've only watched one episode of what we do in the shadows. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I also have not really watched anything. Um, I can just another update on Only Murders in the Building season three continues to be great. And Meryl Streep continues to be an unexpected for me delight. Um, But yeah. Obviously that this season hasn't ended yet, at least while we're recording right now. Do you think that from what you've seen so far, is Meryl Streep going to be a recurring character or just this season? Um, if the show continues on after this season, which I don't know if they have any, I don't know if they have longer term plans for it. I mean, my guess, just knowing how guest stars tend to work, guest stars of her stature tend to work, um, is that she will be this season only. Right As of now, there's certainly groundwork that she could continue on in next seasons but um right now and this is not a spoiler because i don't know we're only a few episodes into the season right now she's my top suspect for the murder so if that ends up being the case i imagine she would not recur (laughs) this season but i don't know we'll see she might not be gotcha all right well why don't we move on to the movie for today so today on the show we are discussing the oxbow incident from 1943, directed by William Wellman, starring Henry Fonda. The story is adapted from a 1940 novel by Walter Van Tilburg Clark. Wellman, who is a prolific director who made hits, including uh, Wings, which won the very first Best Picture Oscar, 
read the Oxbow Incident novel when it first came out and immediately wanted to direct it. However, it took some convincing for Daryl Zanuck, the head of Fox, to greenlight the picture. Zanuck was worried that a dark, claustrophobic story centered on a lynching would not go well over well with American audiences. He offered Wellman only a small budget in exchange for Wellman directing two other films for Fox, and Wellman agreed. The result is a film that is fairly short for a feature. It's only an hour and 15 minutes long, and largely shot on sound stages rather than on location. However, although it was not a financial success at the time, the Oxbow incident received good reviews, and its reputation within the Western genre has only continued to grow. The story of the Oxbow incident follows two loners, Gil Carter, played by Henry Fonda, and Art Croft, played by Harry Morgan, who wander into a small Western town in 1885. When news arrives that a gang of cattle rustlers has shot a local rancher, the town quickly forms a posse to hang the rustlers. Gil and Art, as outsiders in the town, allow themselves to be swept along in order to prevent suspicion from falling on themselves. In a spot called Oxbow Canyon, the posse capture three newcomers to the area, a young man named Donald Martin and his two ranch hands. A debate ensues over what to do. Major Tetley, a wealthy rancher who's obsessed with the Confederacy, argues for lynching them immediately to circumvent the slowness of the law, while Mr. Davies and Reverend Sparks, who is notably played by black actor Lee Whipper, urge the posse to wait and give the men a proper hearing. The events that follow are an exploration of justice, power, cowardice, toxic masculinity, and the dangers of mob rule. Um, so in terms of my first experience with this movie, um, I first watched this movie last year. Um, this is only my second watch. And it just, it really knocked me out. Um, it's one of those movies where you watch it you don't really know what to expect. And then by the end, you just find yourself kind of thinking about it for weeks on end afterwards. I love how contained it is, how claustrophobic. Um, I, I, I love a story that's kind of ends on a sort of sad note of sad irony <laughs> where people are forced to reckon with the consequences of their actions. For some reason, that's a theme that really interests me. Um, yeah, the the sort of darkness and sadness of it is just something that always resonates with me when it comes to the western genre. I I mean we've Tatum we've talked before about how I love westerns. They don't really work for you, but I I do really love them. They really resonate with me. And I love the um the mythic and archetypal nature of so much of the western genre, particularly of this era and how it kind of uses these sort of tropes and archetypes to put together stories about human nature and about power and about civilization and about um, just kind of the way that human beings interact with each other and the way that we hurt each other and the way that we protect each other, morality, power, um, all of these different things. So yeah, this is um, just kind of a, a small Western. Like I said, it's very contained. It's the fact that it's all shot on sound stages does give it this very sort of isolated and claustrophobic feeling as opposed to the more kind of expansive epic sweep of a lot of other westerns of this time but and on first re first watch um that was kind of a detriment to me but on rewatch i actually think it works really well for the the themes and the story that it's establishing so yeah that was my first experience with this movie um Tatum, what are your thoughts? Uh, I know, obviously, as we've talked about many times, you are not a fan of the Western genre. So I, I, I do understand that. But yeah, curious about your thoughts on first watch of this. Yeah. So 
first of all, when I was watching this movie, pretty much within the first five minutes, I was like, this is a Geneva movie. I this is this is a Geneva movie. I can just I can tell why she why she chose this. And if she hadn't chosen it and she hadn't seen it and I had seen it, I would have been like, Geneva, you should watch this. This is a movie for you. Um, so, yeah, um, I find it. I find it to be very interesting that you say that the first time when you watch this movie, it didn't necessarily work for you as much, that it was a little bit more contained as opposed to, you know, filming out and around at different locations, the way that a lot of Westerns tend to be. Um, but then when you rewatched it, it worked a little bit more for you. Um, honestly, for me, I think that's the reason why it did work. So I did, I did like this movie and I think, I think it's because it doesn't really feel like a Western to me. Um, it's not, you know, there's no shootouts. There's no running around on horses trying to, you know, fight for the goodness against the evil of what, you know, it's, it's, it's a lot more of a um, really in-depth study on humanity and the consequences of our actions as opposed to like, it, it's more we're talking about it as opposed to, showing it in terms of like this is good this is evil let's watch them physically fighting each other and whatever um so yeah I think for me I do tend to gravitate towards movies that is that are people just talking about complex issues and um when our last episode you kind of mentioned not mentioned but you asked if I had seen the movie 12 Angry Men and I was like why would you ask me that question and watching it, I'm like, oh, I, I see how you connected this to 12 Angry Men because there are similarities there um, for sure. So, yeah, I, I did like this movie. Um, yeah, I don't know. It, it's not something where I came out of it and I was like, I love that film. But at the same time, I was like, you know, that film asked some really interesting questions. And, and I liked how it navigated all of these different issues and showed all of these different people and their perspectives and, um, kind of this idea of the mob mentality and, um, like peer pressure. And are you going to follow with the crowd? Are you going to stand up for what's right? How do you determine which is which, um, who do you believe? Why, why not? You know, what does justice look like? Does the justice system matter? Yeah. I mean, I wish that, I wish that, uh, more white people at the time had watched this movie and actually taken the messaging to heart because, I couldn't help but watch this movie and think about, you know, this movie is kind of talking about how we shouldn't live life this way and we shouldn't just like kill people without a fair trial and take these matters into our own hands, specifically within the avenue of lynching, um, which was obviously something that was done to hundreds, if not thousands of innocent African-American people that was decided by just mob mentality, basically, um, uh, yeah, I, I wish that this messaging had been uh, it had impacted the culture in a in a more profound way um, and represented like this sort of mentality does not just exist for white people. This sort of mentality should exist for everyone. Um, so, yeah. Um, but yeah, I, I did. I did like this movie. I'm grateful that it was the length that it was, because I think if it gone on much longer, it would have kind of overstayed its welcome. I do think the movie took a little bit too long to get going. Um, I felt like the, the, the opening sequence when they're in the town, it was a lot of like, let's get on our horses and go chase after them. No, no, don't do it. Let's get on our horses and go chase after them. 
no, no, don't do it. And I'm like, okay, are we going to go or are we not going to go? And then when they finally left and found these three men, that was when I really, really got invested in the story. Um, so yeah, I, I liked it and, uh, I'm glad that you picked this movie. I'm definitely happy that I've, that I've seen this. I think the messaging is, is important and, um, it's a, it's a movie that I would recommend to other people. Awesome. Yeah. That makes me really happy to hear. Cause I know, you know, we're operating at a se- severe handicap when it comes to Westerns. It doesn't feel like a Western to me, at least not like a a uh, stereotypical Western. And maybe that's incorrect in me saying that because I haven't seen, you know, copious amounts of Westerns. But given the handful that I have seen, this doesn't feel like that same sort of vibe. Yeah. Well, it's so much more. It's it's so much of a psychological drama. Um, I think I something I read said that this was one of the first psychological Westerns. Um, you know, it, it's kind of a courtroom drama in some ways, even though pointedly it is not a courtroom. There is no legality to the proceedings whatsoever. But a lot of it is just people talking in a contained space trying to decide what to do. Um, so, yeah, there there is some um, some differences from maybe other other Westerns, particularly of this era. It is always kind of <laughs> feel like this is how when I watch a movie like Chariots of Fire and I'm like, I know it's technically a sports movie, but it's so much more to me. Like, it doesn't feel like a sports movie. Because, right. <laughs> yeah. No, I understand. Um, yeah. Yeah. I'm really glad, too, that you you pointed out um, early on, like, the theme of, like, the idea of lynching and what that would have meant for this era and how, you know, disappointing it is that this movie was not more seen and then it didn't have more impact on the culture. Yeah, I I this that is one thing that really struck me about watching this movie how intentional and unusual for this era it is that they make such an explicit connection between the Confederacy, between Jim Crow racism through the presence of a a villain character who is you know kind of has this sort of weird Confederacy fetish and dresses up in a um a civil war outfit to go and lead this posse and then be um, a character who is black and who talks about how his own brother was lynched and that he's only there to um, to be a witness and to try and prevent this from happening again and who explicitly points out the how horrible and unjust everything that is happening is um, like I think those are very intentional choices and they are, you know, from other Westerns that I've seen of this era, they're not common. And I think that that really does make this movie stand out in certain ways. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I can see in what you were saying and kind of your intro, I can see how potentially Fox was a little bit hesitant to take on this project, you know? Yeah, definitely. And especially, I mean, you know, this movie came out during the midst of World War II. You know, probably audiences were a little more primed for I don't know, war pictures where Americans are, you know, it's a little more rah-rah and we're not really in the mood where we want something more dark and introspective. Our enemies are on the outside. They're not here. They're over there. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. But that's, I think, one of the things that I'm really glad this movie was able to be made. And um, I think that's one of the things that has helped it to really age well and to to keep it relevant throughout the, the next, what, 80, 60 80 years <laughs> since it came out? Yeah. Wow, 80, 80 years. 80 years. Holy cow. I'm going to ask my 
my granddaddy and my grandma if they've seen this movie because my grandma would have been 13 and then my granddaddy probably would have been like I don't know six or seven I wonder if they've seen this anyway especially my granddaddy because he loves westerns wonder if he's seen it yeah um good chance he has but yeah I'd love to love to hear if he's seen it and if so what he thinks about it I'm going to call him right now, see if he wants to hop on the podcast. (laughs) Right. On air. (laughs) Uh, Unexpected third. uh, Yeah. Unexpected guest. (laughs) Um, Okay. So why don't we talk through a little bit of the plot? I mean, a lot of this movie, as we've said, is just people talking back and forth. So I think there's a certain spot part where we're just going to be like talking more about the different characters and their arcs and the themes and things like that. Can I just say before we jump into that? Again, this is my first time seeing this movie. I do really struggle with like watching movies with a lot of cast members and remembering who is who and who's what name and what they did and what they said. So uh, you might have to specifically guide me through when you say people like who they are, because even if I look at the IMDb and I see their name and their face, I'm still going to be like, I don't I don't remember. Yeah, definitely. I don't remember what the vibe of your character is. Definitely. Yeah, I'll try to. Because a lot of these names, I mean, literally, I only learned the actual names because I was writing down um, elements of the plot as I was going along. And so I had to go and look them up. And I was like, oh, that's who (laughs) that they're talking about is that's who that guy is. So yeah, no, understandable. Um, So to start with, we have so Gil and Art are basically our two point of view characters. Gil is the Henry Fonda character. He's kind of the, the central protagonist, although he doesn't He doesn't really play an active role in a lot of the action. It's more that he's there to witness what is happening and kind of serve as an audience surrogate in some ways. He's the guy with the sidekick, right? Yes. It's like the two of them are kind of... Yeah. Tall, handsome um, guy. He gets in a fight early in the movie and gets some water thrown on him. Yeah. Yeah. So they roll into town Um, basically they're there because Gil had a girlfriend there and he's coming coming back hoping to see her but it turns out that she has left town and very early on um, I think even though the scene this early part probably does go on a little too long I do think there are some important things set up here in terms of this town is a very small isolated town that is already in a state of high tension because there have been cattle rustlings going on no one knows who's doing them everyone's kind of looking a side eye at each other and we learn that his girlfriend Rose Mapin um she even though she hadn't really done anything she left because the town was making it too uncomfortable for to live there everyone kind of she closed ranks and viewed her as an outsider and so she left because of that and so this is the atmosphere that Gill and Art are in they very much feel their outsider status and so when someone comes running in with the news that this rancher has been shot, so a rancher named Kincaid, who's kind of well-known and well-liked in the town, um, he's been shot, some of his cattle has been taken. Immediately, there's all of this suspicion, and Gil and Art very much feel like we need to get in with whatever the the general feeling is, or otherwise we're going to find ourselves on the outside and all the suspicion is going to go on us because we are the outsiders. We're the strangers. I thought about this after the fact, um, like after the movie ended. I was like, you know, it very well could have been Gil who killed him. Like we don't, you know, they're kind of people who came into town that day and whatever. And obviously the story communicates that he does seem to be kind of an, an empathetic 
person who wouldn't do that. But I found it to be interesting that they kind of, they, they shifted their gaze from these two men to these three men that were out in the wilderness. And it just kind of, it, it made me think about like, this really is just, you look at someone and you say, hey, it's you. You know, it's like there's no there's no logic behind any of it, because if you were using logic, you could have just chosen these two men that were right here. You know, it's just like you made a decision and you stuck with it. Do you have any reasoning for that? I mean, kind of, but like not really. It's a kind of a straw man argument. (laughs) Like it can very easily fall apart. Um, And so I just thought it was interesting after I finished the movie. I was like, there's no evidence showing that it wasn't Gil and his other man and this other man so like huh I don't know I just thought that to be interesting yeah it is fascinating that the movie I think I don't think the movie is necessarily intending to leave ambiguity um especially because Gil is played by Henry Fonda who's like a huge star at the time and is kind of this like bastion of American like righteousness even though he's playing a more morally ambiguous character here um but it definitely there definitely could be a question like we don't know what they did before they rolled into town. And at the end of the movie, we find out that the real rustlers have been caught. So, you know, I don't think it, the movie really leaves any um, question of whether it was actually them all along. But it definitely does. You kind of roll right into it with them in that sense of like, we're just stepping into this situation where we have no context. We don't really know any of these people. And we're just trying to pick our pick our footing very carefully in order to make sure that we don't end up on the the wrong side of the barrel of a gun which i guess they succeeded yeah in doing <laughs> they they yeah they they didn't fail in that uh, <laughs> um there actually is this really interesting moment and i'm curious to get your thoughts on this um when they first enter the bar, there's this weird kind of creepy painting above the bar that they're looking at where it's like do you remember this it's this painting of a woman reclining on a bed and then a man coming through the doorway, kind of looking at her and with this sort of creepy expression on his face. Do you remember this part? Maybe I should just maybe we should just move on from this. No, you can say it. I'm going to I'm going to look it up right now and take a look. at OK, it. sure. Um, so they're they're just having this conversation with the bartender and they're like, yeah, what is going on in that with that painting? And um, I think Henry Fonda's uh, Gill says something like, oh, what exactly does he say? Gil thinks that he's the the man in the painting is he's too slow in getting there. She can do better. <laughs> and the bartender <laughs> says he feels sorry for him because he's so close, but he can't do anything about it. And it's just this weird sort of like the painting looks to me very creepy and predatory. And so I don't I haven't fully worked out what it means within the context of the story, but I feel like it kind of moves in these themes of this idea of sort of innocence and predatory. Toriness, um power but then the different ways that the the men read it versus the way I'm reading it I don't know it's a interesting little detail that I haven't for, fully worked out in my mind yeah I mean I'm looking at the painting right now but I'm not listening to the dialogue that's going with it so I can't really engage with what conversation is actually happening around it but for me, just looking at the painting, which it does come across as creepy, which I think it's probably supposed to, but it kind of gives me this idea of, you know, if you decide that you want something or that you want to do something, I I, I don't know, like you're going to, that's your decision and you're going to make it happen, whether the other person is deserving of that thing or not, like consenting to that thing or not. 
yeah, like you, you're gonna, you're it, like, you've already decided to do it. Um, and that in and of itself is just like an evil sort of mentality. Um, but again, that's just like my off the cuff interpretation, looking at the painting, but not actually hearing like the dialogue of the scene that's surrounding it. So yeah, it's fascinating. A little, little choice to include that. I think the, the Rose Mapin subplot, I mean, it's a very small part and it's really only in the beginning section of the movie. Um, Gil later rose in, uh, runs into Rose as they are, the posse is leaving town and Rose is just kind of passing through on the stagecoach and she's just gotten married to uh, a man in San Francisco. So she's now kind of off the market, I guess. <laughs> um, you know, she's kind of under the, I guess, protection in this era of another man. She's, you know, the the gossips can't gossip about her anymore because she's now married. But they're, they do kind of look at each other and there's a sort of what might have been. And I find the inclusion of that subplot very, it's all similar to the painting. I haven't quite worked out, you know, should it be there? Because it really has no relevance to the rest of the story. But I do think it there are kind of secondary themes that it comments on. Again, that idea of insiders versus outsiders, someone who's alone and vulnerable being potentially in danger of the ire of the majority. So yeah, uh, I don't know if you had any thoughts about, it's just a brief little subplot, but Rose Mapin, the woman who was on the stagecoach and her relationship to Gil. Yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't have any, I don't know, I feel like a lot of what I'm going to be saying is just kind of off the cuff, I don't know, but um, yeah, my initial thought right in this moment is that, and this could be totally an annoying thing to say but and I don't know if it's true but in my mind I'm kind of like well I feel like a lot of movies at this time there has to be some sort of some element of romance to it like every story has every Hollywood story there has to be a love interest there has, has to, be, to be a woman yeah. there has to be this stunningly overly white overly blonde woman that some man has had some sort of love affair with or is currently having a love affair with in order for it to be I don't know. I feel like there was a like a studio requirement at this point where it's like if you don't have a white skinny blonde woman then we're not going to green light this project. And so I think I don't know. That's just that's just kind of my gut that like this it, it was it was kind of a reason to get this guy Gill to actually go to the town, but then after that was like the established thing. I was like, "Oh, well, now let's elaborate on that a little bit." And I don't think it really adds much to the story beyond like, like I said, kind of getting him, a re getting him to the town. But I will say I did see that on Letterboxd, a lot of people were kind of hating on her new husband and saying like, oh, this entitled blah, 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 blah. I thought he was hilarious. I thought that everything <laughs> he was saying, I was like, dang, son. <laughs> I mean, honestly, if my new wife's ex was Henry Fonda, I would feel threatened too, you know? I, you know, he, it was a very sly, gentlemanly way to be like, hey, you know, if in a few months or a few years, like when we're really established in our relationship, then maybe we can invite you over to our house for dinner. Like, I don't know. I, I thought it was hilarious. And I don't think he was necessarily mean in what he was saying. I think he was just establishing a boundary of like, hey, you guys might have had a thing in the past, but like she's married to me now. So like 
not you know obviously maybe there is a sense of her being property or whatever which obviously if it's not obvious like I'm not pro women being seen as like the property of their husband but um I don't know I thought I thought he was kind of funny (laughs) (laughs) yeah yeah it was a strange sort of little bit lighter moment before things really take a turn yeah all right but anyway so um as I said that's kind of a small subplot that occurs early in the movie but then is is wrapped up pretty quickly but so with the main plot news arrives in town that a rancher has been shot and some cattle stolen and very immediately the townsfolk jump onto the idea of let's form a posse let's hunt down these rustlers let's get it done and the sheriff is not there which is very important the sheriff is actually over at the the ranch of the man who was shot they're all just receiving secondhand information they don't have any sort of official authority or really knowledge of what happened or what's being done already to deal with it but there are several voices in town who are just immediately we need to do something right now so the the first voice is farnley who is the um the younger, dark-haired guy who kind of looks evil, if I'm being honest, um, and he was a friend of Kincaid. But then there's also Smith, who's the um, kind of slightly schlubby guy who's just always like making noises about miming hanging people. He just loves the idea of hanging. Uh, he's all about it. But then very significantly, Major Tetley gets involved, and Major Tetley is like this really prominent voice in the area. As I mentioned before, he um, supposedly fought in the Civil War on the side of the Confederacy, and he's really proud of that. And he's just like, I'm going to take charge. We're going to we're going to go out and do this thing. And Davies is he's an older man in the town and he's opposed. He keeps trying to get them to stop and think for just one second. He sends someone for the judge um, hoping that the judge can stop it, but the judge, even though he's opposed, he's really ineffectual. He's just kind of like, guys, no, you shouldn't. Um, and then there's the deputy, the sheriff's deputy, Butch, who is, he's all about the posse. He's he's very much for it. And he deputizes all the members of the posse, supposedly making this whole thing some sort of legal, like, governmental force, but it's very much not. He doesn't have the power to deputize anyone it's just all show. Um, so those are kind of the major players. This is going to be really hard for me to talk about because you're explaining all of these people and I'm literally looking at their <laughs> names and faces on the IMDb page and I still don't have any idea who anyone is. So yeah. It really doesn't help with these older movies that like they're these all wearing had, the same like, costume. They're all like... wearing the same clothes. They all had like 50 year careers. So you could be seeing an IMDb picture of them from like 30 years later, you know? Yeah. So I'm, I'm going to try my best, but like yeah, I might no only be able to talk about this in like general terms and themes as opposed to like what do we think about this specific character? I'm like, I <laughs> yeah, don't no know. At all. <laughs> um, I guess the other important person, too, that we haven't established yet, though, and I assume that because this is a pretty prominent character that you probably were able to distinguish is Major Tetley's son, Gerald, the guy who's wearing yes. the, the plaid coat. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Gerald is supposed to be like, I'm assuming maybe like late teens, early 20s. Um but he's very different from his father. He seems much more like, um, you know, kind of like a shy intellectual type. And then Major Tetley's like the classic, like, you know, my son's got to go out and like do all these manly things or else he's not a man and I'm not a man. And 
you know, it's that kind of toxic, like, father-son dynamic. And so Major Tetley is like, Gerald is going to go with us. Gerald is going to help us do these things. And Gerald very much knows that this is wrong and does not want to. But he's being pressured into it by his father. And his father is who again? His father is the guy who was wearing the the Confederate outfit the entire time and was giving orders. Gotcha. Older guy. Yeah, just very, like brusque and ordering everyone around and not willing to listen to reason gotcha so yeah they they ride out and they come upon pretty quickly these three men that are um out in the middle of the wilderness um just sleeping and so these three men they turn out to be donald martin who's this young guy who just moved into the area with his family he just bought this new ranch like a few days ago he just bought some cattle off of Kincaid, the man who was supposedly murdered, who they're supposedly avenging. And everyone sees this as very suspicious because he doesn't have, you know, he's got some of Kincaid's cattle. He doesn't have a bill of sale. um, So he doesn't have an official receipt or anything like that. And the feeling right away is like, well, that's it. These are the guys. Let's, you know, let's do this thing and be done. And but of course, there are there are other voices who are like, well, let's let's be cautious. Like, Martin is telling us that he bought these cattle legally. He's telling us that he only just moved into the area, that he's got a wife and kids. Like, maybe we should be cautious and we should actually try and bring them back alive and investigate this story before we do anything. Um, Any thoughts just as we're entering this kind of section of, because this is kind of the largest section of the movie. It's very hard to summarize because it is a lot of back and forth. (laughs) Yeah. Deciding whether or not they're going to lynch these men. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. You know. No small thing. Um, yeah, any start, any thoughts just on the, the start of this section as we're meeting these three characters who are kind of under suspicion and um, the initial kind of reactions and back and forth to them? Well, I mean, I thought I thought the movie did a very good job of communicating that these men are innocent. Like I think and I think that's intentional on the movie's part because I think it just it it reflects a lot more on the mentality of this. I'm just going to keep calling them a mob because they basically are. Yeah, that's Um, fully what they are. It like reflects a lot on the mentality of this mob because it's so obvious that these men are, are, are innocent. And yet these men, at least majority of them, literally the majority of them, which is why they get hung. But like they are just so set on these people being the people that they can't even see reason. I mean, we have this, old man who is you know just he's it almost seems like he has dementia or something yeah he's very clearly like his mind is going he is pretty helpless like there's no way that he could have killed anyone and yet for some reason he's under suspicious and the same as the other two yeah he's very clearly not a murderer um also i mean i'm not i'm not a, a psychologist or or a detective or anything like that but i feel like these men are not acting like they just murdered somebody and they're not acting like psychopaths either. Like they seem like genuine human beings who he's not making up this story. Like he does have a wife. He does have children. He did buy this cattle from this man who was alive the last time he spoke to him, you know, and he's so um, baffled by everything that's happening. It takes him such a long time to realize the danger that he's in because it just seems so unbelievable. Yeah. So I just think that, you know, I guess the only thoughts I have at that point are just I think the movie does a very good job of establishing that, in my opinion, well, I mean, not in my opinion, it's a fact that the movie establishes that by the end, like, it's very clear that these men are 
innocent. Um, and I think it's, it's kind of shocking how, how many people don't see that right from the get go. Um, you know, so yeah. Yeah. I think the movie does a very good job of balancing kind of the obvious innocence of these men with these circumstances that they're found in where there is enough, like it is unusual enough that you can understand why they would be suspicious. Um, but it is also very obvious that a, they are innocent, you know, to us as the audience. And also there is enough ambiguity there that even if you are suspicious, you're not, you should not be rushing into judgment because there are very innocent explanations for everything that they're saying. And of course they're too head up to, you know, be willing to listen to any sort of reason. They're just charging forward with all of these assumptions. Which is so wild. Like, how could you just want to kill someone that badly? Like, I just don't understand, but whatever. Yeah. The, cause they established. So with, um, I know you're not going to know who this is, but with Farnley, <laughs> <laughs> um, who was kind of the first one to be interested in forming that posse. They do say something, which I only caught on second viewing. Um, they do something, say something about how he was really good friends with Kincaid. So he has this kind of personal connection. Yeah, yeah. And so you do understand why he at least is sort of, you know, there's a personal element to it. He wants to be the one to bring in or to to kill the person who killed his friends. But then the people who jump on board, like Smith and also Ma, which I find, yeah, who's this this older woman who is just... She is like almost the most bloodthirsty one of all of them. She is so on board right away, which I find such a fascinating inclusion to have a woman be in this, um, not just in the posse, but like a really prominent member who's urging it all forward. Um, they have no, as far as we know, no connection to the, the, the crimes that were supposedly committed. And yet they are just all in on it. And like there's a, a moment later on as they're waiting for daylight to do the the hanging and everyone's just kind of hanging out and the contrast between um donald martin who's attempting to write, write this letter to his wife and he's weeping and he's suffering and the other you know his other two um ranch hands are just you know they're all miserable and then smith and ma are off like sitting together and like whispering and giggling with each other like nothing else is happening it's just the unbelievable um what's the term like lack of humanity to them is just yeah it's just stunning yeah just very very complacent I feel like yeah absolutely so oh and there's also too I just noted as you know in this scene as um Donald Martin the guy who um there they suspect as he's starting to figure out like you know, being questioned, he's baffled. He doesn't understand that he's in real danger of being killed. But as it's dawning on him, there are so many shots from his point of view of point of sorry point of view of the other characters' hands holding ropes and twisting them into knots and nooses. And it's just, I think it's just very well shot. The the sort of building horror and the the actor who plays Donald Martin, Dana Andrews. We actually saw him back when we did Laura uh he plays the detective in that his performance in this is a lot better in my opinion yeah <laughs> he I think he is very good in this I think he does a really good job of the sort of kind of sweet open innocence and the just dawning horror of 
oh my gosh, I was just woken up in the middle of the night and all of a sudden my life is going to be completely changed and I'm just absolutely helpless to stop it. I'm doing, I'm trying to reason with them. I'm trying to persuade them emotionally. I'm trying to do absolutely everything I can in my power and they are just not going to listen to me. You know, he keeps talking to them about he, he has a wife, he has children, you know, people who depend on them, who just moved out to this completely new location and have no friends or means of support. He's the only one that they have and none of that moves them. Yeah. And doesn't he get to a point at the end where he basically just resigns to just, he he understands that this is going to happen no matter what. And he's like, someone needs to take care of my family. Like if you guys are going to do this, there's nothing I can do about it, but I need to, is, is there anyone here that can ensure that my family will not just be left out there to, you know, just like suffer and yeah. So I thought that that was, um, I mean, really sad, but, um, yeah, I just think it shows, yeah, again, just like the human, the human side of him, like he, in this moment when I think a killer would be, I, I don't know how necessarily a killer would act in this scenario, but I don't think they would be thinking about their family in such a profound way that this man is thinking about his family, you know, like it, it really seems like, he didn't expect this to happen, you know, because a murderer would have been like, I don't know, he 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 might have had some sort of plan for his family in the case that something like this happened or some sort of backup plan or whatever. But this guy's really like, I didn't this is coming from nowhere. Like, I didn't know this was going to happen because if I did, like, I wouldn't leave my family in this sort of scenario. You know, there's a really sweet moment um, where uh, Major Tetley orders Gerald, his son, to retrieve the guns of these three men who are um, being held by them. And when he goes to pick up the gun of Donald Martin, Don- Martin kind of smiles at him, like kind of encouragingly, like he sees that Gerald does not want to be there and does not want to be doing this. And Gerald sort of smiles back, but is then confused. And it's just this really nice little moment between these two men who are in this horrible situation that neither of them want to be in. Yeah. For sure. So as this goes along, I mean, so much of this movie to me is about this idea of the insiders versus the outsiders and how the insider status blinds all of these townsfolk to the horrors of what they're doing and allows them to rationalize jumping to conclusions and, um, and you know, committing this horrible act. Um, whereas so many of the people who are against in the end what they're doing are outsiders in some way so we have we have Davies who's an older man um and who has you know he seems to be just very rational and very wise and to understand how quickly these sorts of things can get out of control and throughout the entire thing he is trying he's kind of at the forefront of trying to act to um, calm everybody down and to bring the law back into it and to bring people back to reason. And he's just not able to do it. They're, they're not listening to him, but he really does try. And then you have, um, you have Sparks, who is, he's a, a, relig- a reverend, he's a, a man of God, and he's also the, the sole black person in this movie. Um, and he's sort of kind of tolerated by the group, but they, you know, they don't really listen to him in any way. And so he's just trying to give kind of aid and comfort and wisdom in any way that he can. 
And then as things, you have Gerald as well, who's very much an outsider by virtue of being, you know, not the sort of stereotype of <laughs> aggressive cowboy masculinity that his father seems to want him to be. Um, and then as things go on, Gil and Art, you know, the our two point of view characters, they originally were very much like, you know, we're going to be here but we're going to stay out of it. We're not going to speak up. We're not going to, you know, rock the boat. We just want to keep ourselves safe. But Gil in particular, as things goes on, is starts to be like, no, this is wrong and actually starts to push back. And I feel like this movie is really good about there are so because there's so much back and forth as they're discussing things and they start to do the hanging. And then there's some reason that they stop and decide to wait. And at one point, Gil like starts fighting with someone and tries to you know, kind of break it up in that way. And it just does not work. There's so many moments where you think, oh, this might not happen. You know, there might be a last minute reprieve and it there isn't, you know. Yeah, it's the brutal reality of the world. That's that's how these scenarios often turn out. Yeah. Um, we should talk just briefly about, um, so we mentioned Donald Martin is kind of the leader of the these three um, people who get arrested in the sense that he is, he hired the other two to be his hands as he's... Um, you know, just moved his family out into this part of the world. Um, Hardwick is an older man. He, you know, does not quite seem to be all there, um, is is very delicate and kind of needs to be cared for. And then Juan Martinez is, um, he's kind of an interesting addition because if one other guy in the posse is to be believed, he is guilty himself of other crimes. They say that he's a gambler who's been wanted for murder. Um, and he seems very kind of self-reliant resourceful he seems to have kind of lived a checkered past but he's also this man of just a lot of humanity i find him really a really fascinating character you know he he's able to to take the chance to escape which doesn't end up working but he's very kind of calm and and like he really accepts the end when it comes um but he also asks for a priest so that he can confess so he has this sort of like religious background even though he seems like a person who's lived a really checkered life and i don't know i find him really interesting um anthony quinn is the actor who plays him he was a an actor who is a very prolific and respected actor um and yeah i don't know do you have any thoughts on juan martinez i think he's he's just a really interesting little secondary character yeah i mean honestly i feel like he was one of my biggest complaints in the movie because i feel like he almost felt like an afterthought to me and I didn't like that because I felt like there was a lot of there was a lot of potential there to really dive into this character and and learn more about him and I feel like he was just kind of this guy who was introduced for a few minutes and then that's it. Um so I mean yeah, I I think he's an interesting addition for sure. I just wish that we had learned a little bit more about him and I found it interesting because I did some um I did some like googling after I finished this movie just to see you know what the what the response is to this movie kind of out in the world and there were a lot of people that were saying that they felt like his character was treated very disrespectfully in this movie um and I found that to be interesting because I didn't get that sort of disrespectfully by the other characters in the movie or disrespectfully no, by the movie itself? By the movie itself, there were certain people that were saying that they felt like he was being treated like 
okay, so the stuff that I was looking up was I was very interested in um, just kind of uh, Lee Whipper's performance, and I wanted to know how was he received in this role at the time and, and all of those things. And so there was a lot of comparing between him and uh, Anthony Quinn because they're the only people of color in this movie. And so it was just interesting that there was a lot of um, kind of reverence for Lee Whipper's performance. Then people were comparing the two roles and just kind of saying how, you know, the role of, of Sparks was treated with a lot of respect. And then the role of Juan Martinez was treated a little bit more like, I don't know, racist or something like that. And I, I didn't necessarily get that get a sense of that in the movie but I thought it was interesting that I saw like quite a handful like quite a few people that were taking that sort of perspective but anyway like that's that's just kind of something interesting that I saw out there but in terms of my personal inter- like my personal sense of this character I, I I liked him I just wish that we had learned more about him and he wasn't just kind of this afterthought that was thrown in at the end for a few minutes but yeah yeah that's interesting I I don't know that I fully agree with those um, complaints, but I, I do see it. I mean, it, I think it probably is unfortunate that um, I think it's it's good in a sort of way of complicating things, even though the morality is actually very clear um, of having one member of the three be a more morally complicated person who is probably responsible for murder or at least crime in some other context but having that be the mexican character as opposed to you know the other two characters um like i i can see why that isn't great um but i also just really like anthony quinn's performance and i'm always happy to see him and always want more of him Um, (laughs) (laughs) he's also just so like smooth and interesting and like, you just immediately want more of him. So I'm like, you know, they tell me that he's a gambler who's wanted for murder. But I'm like, yeah, but I want to see his story. Like, I want to. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, that's kind of what I was saying. I'm sure he was. I'm sure it was yeah, just that's kind of what I was saying. Know? Like, I feel like there was a lot more to this character that I had. You know, I just felt like there was more to him. And I was like, well, you can't just bring in someone like that and then not really do anything not like give it. us more like, yeah you know like <laughs> even just give us a sequence where we can hear what he's confessing you know that would be or maybe that would be a little bit too heavy-handed yeah and I, I feel like, like it, it's but... better that we don't know that I mean it almost helps in certain ways this movie that there is this character where you're just like this is such a complex interesting person and there's so much story that he's already lived and there's so much that he could live and so there's that tragedy of him being cut short you know his or his life being cut short yeah yeah anyway um yeah so um the um the decision is generally made martin begs for the chance to write a letter to his family and tetley you know magnanimously grants it um but he basically says, we're going to wait until dawn. You have until then. Um, so Martin writes this letter. Everyone kind of just hangs out. And it seems, as I said before, to be just really relaxed and happy to just chill in the middle of nowhere while we wait for dawn before we execute these obviously innocent people. Um, <clears throat> um, after Martin has read the letter, Davies 
so he gives it to Davies to, to deliver to his family. And Davies reads it and is trying to get other people to read this letter because he's convinced um, from the contents of the letter, which we do eventually hear at the end, but we don't know now. He's convinced that this letter is going to to convince everyone else of his innocence. But Martin is very resistant to this when he realizes that Davy's trying to share the letter around. He's like, no, 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 that's an invasion of my privacy. I don't want these like bullies and ruffians to be reading these private words to my wife. Like I strongly oppose this, um, which I find very interesting. Like he, you know, he really wants to live, but he, there are also certain boundaries that, or maybe he's just resigned himself to the fact that nothing is going to change his circumstances. And so if that's the case, he doesn't want this letter to be shared around all, with all these people. I don't know how, given what you just said, because that seems like a big theme in the movie, but I somehow missed that. I thought that Davies had said something at some point along the lines of like, we've heard this man speak, we've read his letter, we've done all these things, like a murderer wouldn't write these things like you've heard and you've seen how he talks to and about his family like do these sound like the words of a murderer so I maybe I read something wrong but I thought that someone had said something at some point about like we've all read this letter these aren't the words of a murderer but I don't know maybe I just was confused yeah no I think it's just um it's just that he he said, I've read the letter. These are not the words of a murderer. And he's trying to get other people to read it as well. And okay. they largely refuse. But also Mar- Martin is really offended when he, he hears that Davies is trying to share his letter around. Okay, gotcha. Um, so the last thing that happens basically before the actual hanging is... Um, Tetley sort of, he finally concedes to the extent that he says, all right, we're going to put this to a vote. So there's, you know, there's, there's been continual back and forth. Do we hang them now or do we actually wait and get the sheriff and investigate this story? And Tetley says, all right, we'll vote on it. So Sparks is the first one who um, stands up to, to vote against it. Davies joins him. Um, Gil and Art and Gerald all join him. There's two others that we don't really meet, but basically there are seven men in total who stand against the hanging. And then everyone else in the posse, which is like at least two dozen men, are all against. And there's just this this beautiful shot of the, the seven of them standing with sparks in the middle, just looking out against um, the the rest of the mob. And yeah, I don't know. It's It's... I don't know. I, I was very <laughs> moved by that little moment. Yeah, I mean, I really liked the the progression of that scene because it felt very reflective of how humans behave in terms of people can disagree with this or whatever, but I, I kind of think that the way society has worked, it's kind of true. But the it's it's the minorities and the oppressed who are the most willing to stick their necks out for other minorities and oppressed people. And so I don't think it's a surprise that Sparks is the first one to step forward um, because he he gets it and he he wants to fight for justice because he's experienced such injustice in his life and seen other people in his life experience injustice. And so the fact that he's the first one who steps out and then it's not like everyone comes in droves, right? It's like everyone's like, okay, who's going to be the next one? Like, 
if it's just me, what does that mean? Is everyone going to hate me now? Like, am I going to be the one who's hung next? But then some people, they just, they, they recognize that, I guess, like, regardless of the consequences, they have to stand up for what they believe is right. And so slowly but surely, more people start kind of trickling into that group on the other side. And um, I just thought that that was very reflective of how humans actually behave. There is this kind of like what I said in the beginning, there is this, you know, sense of almost peer pressure of, of just like, okay, are you going to stay in this place because you feel pressured by your peers or are you going to actually do what you think is right? And, and regardless of the consequences and it almost makes me wonder, you know, by the time that they decide to, you know, that, that kind of divide of the people is over. I was wondering, you know, there's probably more people on the opposite side that in their heart of hearts would be standing over on the other end, but they have this fear. They're like, Oh my gosh, only seven people. If I go over there, I'm still going to be the minority. So I'm just going to stay here. And so I don't know. I just thought it, it represented this really interesting, interesting, this very unfortunate reality about humans. And, um, yeah, for me, it just begged the question of like how many more people that actually stayed on the side that was pro execution that actually were not pro execution, because my gut tells me that there were quite a few people still on that side that just didn't, that just didn't, I don't know. They just didn't have the guts to to walk over there. I mean, that's something that's so haunting about this movie is, you know, as we'll talk about the fact that all of those people who did not move over to the other side, they're going to need to live with the part that they played. And I mean, the, the people who actually take action and who are speaking up, it's a relatively small number relative to the number of um, people who are there. There are so many people in the background who are not, they're not necessarily arguing for or against but they are silent and they stay on the, the pro-execution side when they are called to actually cast a vote. And then to live with that for the rest of your life, to live knowing that, you know, there's not a specific word that I said or, you know, I wasn't the one who was handling the rope, but I stood still when it really mattered and I was not counted on the side of justice. Like that's something that you're going to have to live with for the rest of your life. Well, that's one of those things where it's like, if you're not doing anything, you're a part of the problem, <laughs> mm-hmm. you know, like it's a very, um, not to, you know, be a broken record and keep repeating myself, but like, yeah, I feel like this scene really represents a huge dynamic of, of what it means to be a human in terms of, you know, because the way the world works, there's always going to be, unfortunately, like unjust things that are happening, whether it's a huge, massive injustice or a small little one or whatever that might be. And it's like, you are a part of the problem if you're not doing anything and doing something obviously can change depending on the scenario, what, what doing looks like. But in this scenario, it's very obvious. Like you either stay over here or you go over there. Like it's, it's very, it's one of two options, you know? And, um, it's a very like, and I don't mean this in a negative way. I mean it in a positive way, but like, it's a very simplistic way of representing this really complex, aspect of life and you know it's a question that I've asked myself for years in the face of injustice whether I'm learning about the holocaust or slavery or um the issues of like the christian church in the past or or (laughs) in present um but like 
there's just lots of things where my thought process is like, okay, there's people who like arguably do what's right, but then there's also the people who are directly acting to do the injustice, but then there's the people who don't do anything. And the people who don't do anything is always the fascinating aspect for me because it's, why are you not doing anything? It's, is it because your life is threatened? Is it because you're too nervous? Is it because you, you are privileged and you don't want to engage? It's like, there's so many reasons, or so many reasons. There's so many different versions of not doing anything. And that has always fascinated me in the face of injustice in any sort of way. Um, and again, like this scene, I feel like represents that complexity in a very simplistic way. Um, and it's, it's very pr- profound in my opinion. And just the, the heartbreaking shot too of as people are trickling over from one side of another, you see this, this momentary hope on Donald Martin's face as he sees and he's like, oh, there's, there's a couple more and then there's a couple more, maybe there'll be more. And then he's just waiting and no one else goes and that's it. You know, that's the number. It's seven versus a lot, you know, 25, 30. Yeah, a lot. Yeah. Well, I was wondering watching that. I was like, I don't know how big this group is, but this doesn't feel like it's a very close vote. It feels like it's it. Seven is nowhere near being the majority. Yeah. I counted when they were kind of scanning through the other side. I counted about 25 ish. Okay. Um, But it feels like more too, just with the you know, and it's possible there are others in the background that I couldn't catch. But yeah, it's it's not close at all. Um, so the hanging then happens. Um, the the last thing they need to establish is who. So basically, they you know they they put the nooses on the the tree, and the the three prisoners are put on horses, and they need people to whip the horses out from underneath each person. And um, so Farnley is assigned to one. Ma is like very happy to volunteer and do it. And then Major Ger- uh, Major Tetley assigns Gerald, you know, his son to do the other. And Gerald is like, no, I don't want to do that. And Tetley tells him, he's like, you have to. And he says, I don't want a female boy, which is a very <laughs> interesting. And like, there's a lot of just misogyny and potentially like um you know ingrained homophobia just a lot of things like packed into that one little statement and and that relationship between the two of them so they all get into position and i forget does the son actually end up doing it or does someone take his place no he does not so who does it then so what happens is um someone fires a gun and farnley and ma both whip the horses and gerald's horse gerald does not whip the horse but his horse starts moving anyway i think a little bit slower than the others oh okay um but yeah he refrains from doing anything and tetley walks over and just pistol whips him like so calmly so so quickly just absolutely smacks him to the ground um which is horrifying and then um they shoot the the i guess any of the prisoners who are still alive at this point um so yeah, and Sparks just starts start singing a gospel song um, to kind of memorialize what just happened, and it's it's horrifying. Like it's you don't see anything. You don't need to. You don't need to. You know everything that just happened, um, and yeah, it's just it's over so quickly after so much deliberation and back and forth and so much false hope. It's just it's done did you the first time you watched this movie did you expect the movie to end in that way or did you expect um a grand 
turn of events. Last minute rescue. Happen. Yeah. I'm trying to remember. Um, I think I think I went in thinking that it was going to be there would be some sort of last minute reprieve. But I think at a certain point earlier, mm-hmm. I started realizing, oh, I don't actually I don't think this is going to end happily. I think this is just going to. So, yeah, it both times when I watched it, you just I felt just kind of this cold numbness, you know, like it's been building to this for so long and you just become resigned at a certain point. Yeah, I I think I think my experience was the same. Like when it first started, I was like, okay, you know, they're all going to la di da, like get to a point where it's like, okay, you know, we're going to let you off, whatever. But then, um, pretty, pretty quickly after probably within like five minutes of them actually encountering these men in the forest, I was like, oh no, this is an inevitable ending. Um, which is awful, but also like true to life. So, yep. So the posse, they all gather up their horses and they leave and pretty much immediately they run into the sheriff who has news to tell them, which is, hey, that guy you thought was murdered. Actually, he's he's not murdered. He's still alive. (laughs) And we've caught the people who shot them slash the cattle rustlers. So everything has been taken care of. And and then he's like, what have you guys been up to? And they're like, well, we caught the murderers and we hanged them. And the sheriff... There's a great moment. The sheriff turns to Mr. Davies, who, you know, all along has been the one who's most vocal about opposing what's everything that happens. And he's like, Davies, I know you well enough to know that you were not a part of this. I trust you to tell me what, who actually was, who did this hanging. And Davies looks around for a moment and then he says, all but seven. Mm. And it's, oh man. And the sheriff just tells them all, God have mercy on you because you're not going to get any mercy from me. Yeah. Yeah, so they they all head back into town. Um, we first see what happens with um, so Tetley and Gerald. They ride off to go back to their house. Um, <laughs> Smith, you know, who's the one I mentioned before, who's just throughout this entire movie has been like miming, hanging at every given moment, and is just playing with ropes and like is so pro hanging. He's like, oh. As he watches Tetley go, he's like, oh, he's the one that we should have lynched. Like, you know, yep. oh, he's the one who led us all into this. And Gil just says, you're a great one for hanging, aren't you, Smith? Like, like, dude, you, you can't even look at yourself and realize the part that you played in it. You immediately want to pass off the blame to someone else. So Tetley goes home and he locks Gerald out. And... um, Gerald, that just like breaks Gerald. And all he finally like fully stands up to his father and he has this amazing speech that I love and I'm just going to read the whole thing do it um, because I think it's so well written he says you loved it that's why you kept waiting so long I saw in your face it was the face of a depraved murderous beast there are only two things that have ever meant anything to you power and cruelty you can't feel pity you can't even feel guilt in your heart you knew those men were innocent yet you were pull crazy to see them hanged to make me watch it I could have stopped you with a gun, just as any other animal could be stopped from killing, but I couldn't do it because I'm a coward. Aren't you glad you made me go, Father? Weren't you proud of me? How does it feel to have begot a weakling, Major Tetley? Does it make you afraid that there might be some weakness in you, too, that other men might discover and whisper about? Open the door, Major. I want to see your face. I want to know how you feel now. And 
Yeah, and then Tetley just he just silently walks into another room and you, he shoots himself, and that's the end of his storyline. But oh, yeah, at that moment that the actor who plays Gerald I think is is really good throughout the movie and just being so he has so few little dialogue, but he is so expressive in his sort of you know the way that he defers to his father and. I don't know if you can even say wants to please his father, but that, you know, there's this real sense that there's a very abusive relationship between the two of them and that he knows he needs to fall in line or else. And it's finally this moment where he just stands back and says, I acknowledge that throughout a lot of this, even though I've been, you know, clearly opposed to everything that's happening, like I have been a coward in certain ways because at a certain point I could have like just grabbed a gun and stopped it by force and I never did. And I recognize that that's a weakness in me, but also you have, you know, your issues with me have all been projecting your own doubts and insecurities about yourself and using them to act out and inflict pain and cruelty on others. Like he's he's accusing his father of being this sociopath, basically, and, and um, a sadist and enjoying the pain of others because of his own personal self-loathing and yeah it's just it's a oh such a fantastic moment and so so devastating one of my thoughts after that scene was would tetley have shot himself if his son hadn't said all of those things and and if he had what would have been the reasoning like would he would he be shooting himself because he doesn't want to face the consequences that the sheriff is going to you know, bring about upon him or would he be shooting himself because of the shame of what he's done? Um, But then after his son says that, it's like, okay, well, now is it because of what the son said? And is it because he disappointed him or because he doesn't like the way his son looks at him? Does he feel shame because his son finally helped him come to the light to see what he, you know, I just... I find it interesting to think about like what was the actual reasoning behind him doing that? Was it all of the above? Was it none of the above? Um... Ultimately, it it is what it is. Like, it just happens. Um, but regardless, I'm grateful that his son was able to say that to his father before that ended. Because I feel like for the son's sake, it was probably very um, healing and therapeutic for him to be able to, like, say that to his father's face while he still could. Maybe not. Maybe he'll go on to be like, oh, my gosh, the last words I said to my father were not loving. But I don't know. No, I, I feel like it would have been really, really therapeutic because you can just I feel like you can just tell that there is so much history between these two that we're not seeing. But this is just kind of the the final culmination of, you know. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, that that was probably in the whole movie. That was probably the most unexpected thing for me. I didn't expect that to happen. Um, but I, I, I'm not going to say that I'm I'm glad it did because I'm not pro, you know, <laughs> shooting yourself. But um, but yeah, it, it is kind of a an odd sense of of justice. So yeah, it's kind of the one bit of any sort of cosmic justice that you get in this movie. Yeah. Um. So back in the bar, everyone else from the town is just kind of silently drinking with each other and um. <clears throat> We learn that the men have started to put together a pot of money to give to Donald Martin's wife, um, which... Who initiates that? D- didn't they tell us? Is is it Gil? Or um, or do we not know who initiated it? I don't think we know who initiated it. Um, okay. Yeah, I think it, it, Gil is reporting that it's it's happened. He says he put in $25 each for each of him and Art. Which apparently is a lot of money because 
you know, I th- what's his name? Donald. He apparently bought his entire ranch for four thousand dollars. Oh yeah. <laughs> so twenty five dollars goes a long way. Yeah, yeah. I mean, five hundred will probably get keep them going for quite a while. I mean, it's absolutely no, <laughs> you know, five hundred dollars for the life of your your husband is no exchange at all. But um, at least there is some desire to financially provide for you know these, these family whose lives they're devastated um but anyway so gill decides that now is the time to read donald's letter and um he asks art to read it art says he can't read so gill says well i'll read it to you and it's a really it's a really beautiful letter i think um you know, it is very much that kind of 40s thing of like, let's let's state all the themes like out in the open and just kind of put them out there and meditate on, you know, how the world should be. But yeah, he's just kind of offering forgiveness for the people who've been there, recognizing that they are going to have to live with what they've done for the rest of their lives and just kind of meditating on the fact that the, the conscience of the people is what keeps us a civilization, what keeps us able to to be in in community with each other and um that humanity is all connected with one another and so the when one person hurts another person they're hurting the entire whole there's this really beautiful shot as he's reading where their faces are kind of faced in different directions and the brim of art's hat is covering gill's eyes as he's reading yeah i liked that a yeah, lot it's really gorgeous um and everyone in the bar is just kind of silently listening to it and absorbing it I really liked that shot because I felt like it communicated that it's Gil's not the one who's speaking these words like like we see his mouth as kind of the like the mouth is the avenue through which the words are coming out but it's not actually Gil speaking so like we don't see his face we just see his mouth as the messenger and you know Donald is the one who's actually actually speaking which I actually thought that was quite beautiful but yeah so then Gil and Art leave and Art says well where are we going next and Gil says didn't Donald say that he needed someone to take care of his family and then he this letter needs to be delivered and so they ride off to go and um to do that to to take care of the family to deliver the letter to deliver the money and um they kind of have a new purpose I guess um at the end of this movie yeah so yeah that's the end they ride on out of town forever changed by what has just happened it's a good movie i'm so glad you liked it <laughs> yeah it's definitely something that i think that i think i need to rewatch at some point because it's th- there was just so much going on and so many different people and i was you know trying to not that not that i had trouble keeping track of what was happening because the story is pretty straightforward Um, but at the same time, I definitely think that there's like certain, certain, um, moments that I didn't completely pick up on or, or that I forgot about a little bit. So I would like to go back and, and rewatch this at some point. Well, it's impressive for how short a movie it is. And even this short, I I do think a lot in the first part, especially involving Rose Mapin is kind of padding, like not completely useless, but also kind of padding, but once it gets going for how short it is, there is so much packed into there. And I'm really glad I had the chance to rewatch it because there's a lot that I caught on the second watch that I didn't catch the second time or little things about secondary characters that I was tracking through the first, um, tracking throughout the movie that I, I didn't pick up on the first time. So 
yeah, it's a it's a short movie, but there's a lot packed in there. There's a lot of layers. There's a lot of things to unpick afterwards. Mm-hmm, for sure. All right. Well, any final thoughts before we move on to critical response? Not really. I mean, I'm just I'm glad that you I'm glad that you chose this. I I did I did like this movie. I think. Like I said, I'm going to watch it again. So That makes me really happy. I, I never I, would have watched it otherwise. It's yeah. a Western, well, it's a Western, but not a Western. <laughs> <laughs> it's a Western, but not really Western. Yeah. It's more than a Western. Um, yes. And yeah, anyone who's listening who's, who's not seen this, it is free on YouTube right now. There's like multiple uploads yeah, on YouTube multiple. that you can go and watch. Yeah. yeah. And again, it's only an hour, 15 minutes. So um, barely over an hour uh, episode of television. Yeah. Um, so I think I mentioned at the beginning, but this movie was, it was well received by critics at the time, although unfortunately it did not do very well at the box office. Um, I don't think it, I read somewhere it didn't actually make back its money until it was re-released years later. Um, but it has grown in estimation over the years. Um, so I pulled one, uh, quote from... And um, a recent article on this movie by the writer's name is Nick L. Uh, and this is in Collider. But he writes, um, actually, these are these are two quotes, but I'm just going to crush them together. Um, so he writes, the Oxbow incident stands out in Wellman's filmography, both for how uncompromisingly dark it is and at how unflinchingly modern it feels. Update the action from 1885 Nevada to the present day and substitute horses for police squad cars, and you've got a terrifyingly relevant cautionary parable about the myriad ways in which human beings can abuse power and rush to judgment. Like Howard Hawks's Red River, another classic Western that feels bracingly contemporary today, the Oxbow Incident is ultimately the study of man's ugliest impulses. There are no easily identifiable good guys and bad guys here, no daring escape missions where the foes vanquish, heroes vanquish their foes and get the girl before the credits roll. There's only the cruel inevitability of man's demise and the crushing feeling of inescapable culpability. It's a film that understands there is not necessarily any catharsis in reprisal. On the contrary, it only begets more bloodshed, more trauma, more loss. Yeah, I think that sums up, at least for me, a lot of what I really love about this movie. It is, like you said, it is a movie that feels very modern in a certain sense and, and certainly is um, kind of simple and clean enough in the way it is so archetypal, which is another, th- another thing I love about Westerns, but that you can easily transpose it to any era and find things that are it's saying that are, are relevant to the present day. Mm-hmm. All right. Um, so the Oxbow incident, um, it did win or it was nominated for one Oscar, I believe it's one of the few movies that the only oscar nomination it received was for best picture um it did lose out to a little movie called casablanca but i think hot take but actually a hot take Uh uh-huh i think this movie's better than casablanca Ooh, all right (laughs) i for the record i don't think casablanca is a bad movie i think casablanca is a great movie i also think it's overrated yeah, I need to rewatch Casablanca. I remember really loving it the last time I saw it, but it's been several years. Um, yeah, it's it, it's not a bad movie. I just, mm-hmm. people are like, it's the best movie of all time. And I'm like, is it? <laughs> is it though? I don't think so. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's one of the movies that it's like, it's such a classic. It's almost hard to judge. Like, is this good? Is this bad? How can you like judge it relative to other movies? Because it's just such a, you know, foundational staple of Hollywood. Yeah, you know? it's not even like, like a piece of art that can be looked at for the sake of what it is anymore. It's like you have to look at it and how it connects to this whole entire, you know, 
almost century of what it means and what it's been communicated to be and yada 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 yeah anyway like not um, to go on that tangent but no but like how like citizen kane is like this you know movie that transformed and reinvented so much of cinematography and storytelling and things like that it's almost hard to judge today as like how is it as a movie i don't know it's just you know there is no modern hollywood without citizen kane I do think that Citizen Kane is great, though. <laughs> yeah. I, I don't think I, Citizen, I love Citizen Kane, Kane is overrated. To be clear, yeah. I think Casablanca is overrated. I don't think Citizen Kane's overrated, but... I had a weird experience where, like, before I'd seen Citizen Kane, I'd seen multiple people say, you know, it's it's so transformative, it's so, like, revolutionary, but it's also really boring, and so I <laughs> went into it. I had these low expectations. You expected it to be really boring. Yeah, and then, yeah. no, it's not. It's amazing. It's fantastic. Um, so if you've never seen Citizen Kane, it is not boring. I rebel against that i would say if you're going to watch citizen kane go in expecting it to be boring yeah there you go then you'll like it more if you go in expecting it to be like oh it's gonna be a grant like then then you're probably not going to like it as much so yeah just be prepared like it is very long there are certain people that would consider it to be boring so just like go in with that mentality and you'll probably really like it. <laughs> yeah, there you go. <laughs> That's right. Low expectations. That's what we always want. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Final thoughts. So, um, I mean, I've I talked a little bit about this at the, the, the start, but yeah, this movie really moved me the first time I watched it, moved me again, um, rewatching it now. Um, I just, I think it has... So much to say about um, humanity, about um, right and wrong, about Whoa. power and this injustice. Yeah, it's just a a very contained sort of fable-like story that I think just works really, really well. And I wish it was more widely seen. And I highly recommend our viewers, if you've not already done so, go and seek it out. Yeah, I mean, I would... I would echo that. I I think this is a movie that I will watch again. I think it's a movie that a lot more people should watch. Um, yeah, I'm not going to, you know, repeat everything we've already said. But yeah, I think it's a great movie and highly recommend. Awesome. All right. So Tatum, do you want to tell the people what we're going to be talking about next week? Yeah. So next week we will be talking about... Um, I don't even know how to necessarily introduce this. It's a movie I haven't seen in a while, um, but it is very, very moving. Um, and I am looking forward to watching it again and talking about it. Uh, Cause I don't think I've seen this in like maybe even over 10 years. Um, but we will be watching the pursuit of happiness from 2006. So um, yeah, if you want to be incredibly inspired, well, if you want to be incredibly depressed first and then inspired, <laughs> this is the movie for you. So, yeah. Yeah. I'm excited about this. I have not watched this in a very long time, even definitely longer than 10 years. So, and I remember very little about it. So I'm excited to see it again. Yeah. It's, it's, if I remember it correctly, it's, it's a good one. So yeah, I'm sure you're right. Yeah. I'm hopefully sure this right. won't be another begin again situation where oh, it's gosh. like, I thought it was really good. And then I watch it. I'm like, actually, um, that was a fun conversation though. I've seen this movie more than once. I've seen this movie a handful of times, so I'm pretty sure I okay. have a good grasp on what we're getting okay. into here. So yeah. All right. All right. Well, thank you everybody for listening and, uh, have a good week. Goodbye. Bye.
Thanks for listening. If you want to get in touch with us, you can email us at yourpickpod at gmail.com. Our theme song was composed by Joel Rushton, and our podcast graphic was designed by Kara Shin. If you like this show and want to hear more, please rate and subscribe on your favorite podcast platform. We're excited to have you on this journey with us. Until next time.